Yes, it's Whataboust, a celebration of Reeves and Mortimer. Please welcome your hosts for this podcast, MJ Price and Paula Wiseman. Hello and welcome to Quite a Boast, a podcast dedicated to the work and genius of Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. My name is Matt Price, founder of the Reeves and Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I'm Paula Wiseman, the creator of the Divine Comedians podcast. Today we are joined by a man who first became known during the heady days of the 1990s, initially as part of the Big Breakfast team and then on the Chris Evans Radio 1 Breakfast Show. He has since gone on to become a hugely successful composer of TV themes, including Take Me Out, Alan Carr Chatty Man, A League of Their Own and The Big One, Only Strictly Come Dancing. And he has worked with Jim and Bob on a number of Reeves and Mortimer projects throughout the years. He also happens to share a home with everyone's favourite canine scene stealer, none other than Gone Fishing's four-legged dynamo, Ted. Please enter the Novelty Island paddock, Dan McGrath. Hey. Hi, Dan. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Dan. Uh, Ted is, um, I'm, hi, how are you doing? Uh, Ted is currently downstairs asleep in the garage. He's escaped. He's, he's escaped demons. down there. He's he demons. is. He what is. He's the real star of the show, as everybody now says, when they see him. <laughs> he's yeah. great. Because he gets he gets recognised when you're walking in, which is the maddest thing ever. He's got 120,000 followers on Instagram, and people go, "That looks like that dog off the blah blah blah." And you go, "It is," and they go, "Oh right, oh is it?" Oh, and then they're, they're you know selfies and everything. It's quite he has a distinct look, doesn't he? So you can't really. He hide. certainly does. He's an unmistakable uh, face. Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying about that when he the, the girlfriend when they tried to introduce. Uh, Ted to a new girlfriend in the new series of Gone Fishing, and she just ran past him. I, I felt his little heartbreak. Effie, Effie, right. yes. <laughs> you'll, uh, you'll have to get my wife on because she's obviously, you know, the mastermind behind a lot of that stuff. So uh, she can fill you in with all the kind of uh, nitty gritty. All the behind the scenes gossip. <laughs> of yeah. course. Real absolutely. Ted. absolutely. Yes, yes. <laughs> the warts and all. Literally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's start by sort of going back in time you're a bit of a jack of all trades dan so how do you i mean you're composing music and stuff now but obviously you're a sound engineer back in the day i mean what what was the plan initially like when you left school and stuff were you into music were you into how how music's all put together yeah i mean yeah i'm, I'm a massive music fan always been a massive music fan my first my my quite a boast i guess is my first vinyl I ever bought, as kids call them now. Uh, my first record I bought was Starman, David Bowie, when I was seven. Uh, my house was full of music. My mum my mum had very young taste and was brilliant, used to be playing Zeppelin. And my brother, who's six years older than me, was, was listening to that sort of music. And I was listening to Bowie and uh, kind of, yeah, Top of the Pops was, you know, what we put on on the TV. And Absolutely a music fan. Stood in front of my mirror with a tennis racket and mine to Adam and the Ants and Gary Newman. And I saw Newman recently, did a, an acoustic gig. And I think for me, that was a real kind of, um, I, I did a little quick, you know, tweet or whatever, an X. And it was, for me, it was, Bowie was one of those people when I, 
I love Bowie. And then Newman was this sort of moment for me where I went, ah, oh, so this is the guy that I'm now going to follow because he's the sort of natural progression at the end of the 70s. Always a huge music fan, but it wasn't a plan at all. I, I'm not classically trained. I mean, thinking about what I was going to say to you, because it's it's funny, my life is more comedy than it is music. Um, and I think that's probably why I hope I've excelled at working with people like Chris Evans and Jim and Bob and working with Danny Baker or, you know, the DJs I've worked with and, and the TV people I've worked with. It's, it's um, so sim in, a, in a nutshell, when I was a very small kid, obviously, uh, my dad was a film director. My dad was a writer, producer and film director in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, and he worked with the great and the good of, of some real seminal acts. He, so he wrote and produced not only, but also with Pete and Dud. He did the Magic Christian with, with Ringo and Pete Sellers was a good friend of his. And then as when he, as we got older, he, he lived, he had a place down in Sussex and um, he was very good friends with Leonard Rossiter. So Leonard was always over. And so I can remember, and this wasn't all the time. I'm not one of those kids, but I can remember the odd occasion where we go down there. And of course he'd invite his friends. My mom and dad had split up when I was very young, when I was 18 months, but so we'd go for the weekend. Uh, and mum would boot us out and do, <laughs> put the music on loud and have a nice time without us, I'm sure. Um, and so we'd go down there and, you know, there would be a dinner party where there was, I remember one occasion was Tom Baker, the then Doctor Who, Lala Ward, who was his assistant and his girlfriend at the time, his assistant on telly. Mm. Uh, Leonard Rossiter was there who, um, any kids listening are going to go, who's that potentially? But he was Rigsby in Rising Damp. Um, and if you look up Leonard Rossiter, just an absolute kind of British comedy uh, yeah. hero. Mm. Um, and so it was like, it was uh, John Bluthel and these, my dad oh, wow. knew all the kind of, my dad knew all the bit part actors as well as the na main names, you know. Mm. And then he worked with the Beatles. He worked with, because he knew Ringo and did, if you watch the Get Back uh, thing on, on, on Netflix, the one of the first ones i think it is dad's just about to make my dad joe is just about to make the magic christian with ringo in one of, of the other studios when yeah. they've started writing the album so the reason they're there is because ringo has to jump out and go and work on the magic christian in the other studio and at one point pete sellers comes in and sits down and has a slightly kind of awkward conversation mm. with them all and that was pete he was very much like that very um awkward um, but brilliant. And that'll be a theme running through probably many people in the comedy world we can never talk about is, you know, not calling cool company, fucking funny. Um, <laughs> and Pete sits down. And then at the end of that scene, my old man walks through the back and says, I think it's this way and goes with Pete. And then Ringo would have probably followed on later. So, so my dad was kind of in that world and that, and he did he, he directed Digby the biggest dog in the world, which is the funniest thing. Cause it's one of those movies from the seventies that people either go look at you, like a dog that's been shown a card trick or they go, Oh my God, I love that film. Um, and so that was his kind of his realm. And I think, so the reason I mentioned that is, and you touched on it in the mid nineties or through the nineties, I worked with Chris Evans, the DJ and, and, and TV presenter. And, uh, in the mid nineties, I lived my old man for a summer. Uh, I won't, I won't say why, but I lived in his flat in North London for a summer. So this was 19, the summer of 1996, one of the maddest years of my life, I have to say. And I would come home, come back to the flat at sort of 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, having done the breakfast show with Chris Evans on Radio One, and then say to my dad, I've got to write two jokes because I had this terrible character called Charlie Manning, we ended up calling him. 
I think mm. we called him Charlie Chuckles to start with. And he was this awful northern comedian who wasn't very funny. And what happened was we got complaints from somebody called Charlie Chuckles, who said he was losing work because people thought <laughs> people thought I was him on the radio. And they were like, he's not funny. We're not going to hire him. So we had to change. <laughs> we changed his character. But so I went back to my old man and I just say, look, I've got to write two jokes. And it doesn't sound like much, but writing jokes is just the hardest thing. Mm. It's the hardest thing. And, you know, you can find any number of books and publications about the notion of whether being funny drives you mad or you have to be mad to be funny. Uh, you know, Spike was a good friend of my dad's as well, Spike Milligan. Again, you know, manic depressive, but brilliant. Mm. And um, my dad would be like, OK, don't worry. I've worked with these people. I know what it's like to write jokes and I know what it's like to deal with those sorts of characters because Chris, you know, is it, it, from a mold, a genius, crazy, impossible, very difficult to work with. But when you get gold out of them, it's something you can't explain. It's like writing songs with people when you when you click writing a song and you both look at each other and go oh, and you all start getting that that wonderful free song because you're like, this is why we're doing this. And I'd say, my dad would be, that's fine, we'll write the gag. So we'd just noodle about and go to the pub or sit around. And then one of us would say something and my old man would go, that's it, that's, that's, the, that's the punchline. Write that down so you get a piece of paper and write the punchline down. And then we'd later on he'd go, I know, he could say this. And we'd write that down. He'd go, right, you've got your two jokes, have the rest of the night off. And then I could relax because I'd written these two jokes. Mm. And I think that was, that's the sort of symbiosis of my old man and, and me having that world of going into what he did was then working with, you know, uh, working with talent and trying to be funny or trying to, trying to work out what was funny, which as, as Eric Morgan once said, when they introduced him, the BBC got these people in called the comedy consultants or the comedy experts or something, you know, back in the day. And Eric Morgan was introduced to them. These are the comedy consultants, the experts. And he looked at them and went, what do you mean, you know? <laughs> so i think you know that like i say my life has been more comedy than music but so yeah uh to try and answer your question um paula i bought synthesizers because i wanted to be in depeche mode that's what i did me, <laughs> me, and my mate, me and my mate john jakes were like i was obsessed with 80s electronica still am uh, and, and electronic music and we bought synthesizers and we just made ourselves make music on them because that's what we wanted to do mm. and if i had all the old gear that we had back in the day now i'd be a millionaire because it's always <laughs> so much bloody money um so that's what i did and then i sort of went I, I didn't do my a level i was terrible in school not very good at anything and the music the music um lessons in school in, in a comprehensive in south london were awful they weren't very good. And I think to this day, that's something that let's not get too political, but you know, it's not encouraged by the current government to, to be creative mm. and write music is encouraged mm. to not do yeah. that because it breeds lefties. And, and also it, you know, it, it's let's do maths and English, which just breaks my heart. Um, yeah. And I wish the music lessons had been better and more enjoyable so that, you know, you end up liking the subjects of the teacher you like, no disrespect to my music teacher. I can't remember who it was. So, I didn't do very well in O-levels. Then I did a, I did a two-year art diploma instead of my A-levels in Richmond College and, and spent most of the time going to the, to the sports hall with John and setting up our synthesizers and our drum machines and trying to play music. So I think it's just always been something that I've wanted to do. And funnily enough, I met a friend of mine who I haven't seen for like nearly 30 years. He was an old friend of mine that we were kids. We lived in the same close in, in Wimbledon. And he said, don't you remember when we were kids, you used to just sing on everything and you were always singing and you had a great voice. And I was like, I honestly don't remember that. But 
him and this other guy, John Jakes, we'd always get microphones out. I was obsessed with recording things. I really like recording things. I don't know why, but I do. And we were obsessed with recording ourselves. And we would, John and I would like, if he came and slept over, we'd lie there and do Derek and Clive style skits. So again, going back to that thing of goofing about, trying to get a laugh, showing off and enjoying music. So I've ended up, my career has been me going into places not as a musician and then going, I can do music. It's That's interesting because what... you hear interviews with Jim, Jim and Bob, especially Jim, who was always says that he never grew up on comedy and music was his thing, music and art. And yeah. They were in so many bands during the 80s. And yet and in the 90s, it all sort of uh, clashed together, the music and the comedy. Yeah. And the, and the first thing that happens when Jim and Bob come into the studio is Jim sits down and picks up the bass and starts playing it. And then you, and then Bob will go, right, Jim, what's that thing we're doing? And the, oh God, yeah, we've got to do that, have we? You know, it's <laughs> absolutely that. They're, they're in a sweet shop full of music and we're there going, this is great. We're doing mad stuff with, with, with Vic and Bob. When you moved on to um, Big Breakfast and also Chris Evans radio show. Did you have any interaction with Jim and Bob at the time before you started working with them? Because obviously they appeared as guests on a lot of those shows. Yes, yeah, so I can. So there was one. I remember I recount one story. I think. Um, yeah, well, you know, we were in that zeitgeist '90s thing. So when I say we, the Radio on Breakfast Show crew, mm. uh, we were in that world of the '90s. Evans was part of it. Vic and Bob were. There were times when you go to gigs and they were there and we were there and there was all that kind of stuff and everyone's at the bar. And the, the, I do remember one occasion. So we did the Radio 1 Breakfast Show in 90, summer of 1996. And so that involved uh, touring around the south coast of England of about six different locations, St. Ives and Western Supermare and uh, Woolacombe in Devon. And uh, Chris went, I'll only, do the, I'll only do the summer road show if I can do the big week, which was that week, you know. And um, so we did the whole thing, you know, we jumped up on stage at something like 11 o'clock in the morning, did an hour, mime to Oasis, sang live, mime the guitars, uh, and just literally messed about for a week, got very, very drunk, very, very tired. Just, it was mad. It was like being in Take That. It was so funny. And, but we went to Woolacombe on one of the dates. And the, so, you, so we'd arrive there the night before, chuck your stuff in the hotel, and then you'd go out. And we went to, the, I think it's called the Morisco which is a disco in Woolacombe in Devon. It's a Woolacombe's a great surf spot. Yeah. And I think Vic, Jim, used to be into surfing. I think he was. Yeah. Uh, you probably tell me, you can, you can tell me. And um, so we went to, so one evening, we do this evening in the Morisco and it's Bedlam because Evans is there. So the place is heaving and we're, it's a sweaty night and Vic, turn, Jim turns up. Now, I can't remember why. My memory is horrendous, but I can't remember why. So we're now in the Morisco. We're all dancing and drinking, and Jim's behind the decks DJing in this mad, tiny little club in Woolacombe in Devon, as only he can. And John Rebel, who's my mate on the show, said, we're all stood there. The whole place is going crazy. And John said he turned around, and he sees Jim behind the decks, and then all of a sudden the floor gives way, and Jim just disappears into the floor. And John said, so he looked around and looked down and Jim's up to his shoulders and nipples, it, you know, with the wood where he's fallen through, but he survived. He hasn't gone all the way down. So a waving like that and we haul him out of this hole and stick him back up at the decks. And 
God knows how much he'd had to drink at that point. Anyway, so that so so yes, they were they were you know the Vic and Bob thing was in our uh, in our world as well. About mm. uh, you know I, I was a fan, so I made my girlfriend watch the New Year's Eve big night out in was it nineteen ninety? I think they did. Yeah, yeah. It's the end of the eighties, wasn't it? Nineteen ninety. Yeah. It was- yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and they did. They did. The, they did a show on New Year's Eve. They ran a big night out on New Year's Eve, and I made my girlfriend stay in and watch it instead of going out to a fireworks display or anything like that. I'm not sure that she was that. that you know, she was that upset about it. I think she probably found it quite funny. But at, at that point, then I was a fan. I discovered them and was watching it on telly and was you know trying to find it. And of course, back then you you had to wait till it was on. Mm. Yeah, you know, you, you you weren't searching YouTube. So if it was on, I was like, well, I want to watch this because it's mm. on. So I'm I'm not going out. No, resetting your calendar to that's the thing about live t- having to watch live TV. You had to basically say, right, I have to be in at eight o'clock or what have you to watch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although my, I, I did a I did a stint in the wine trade uh, right off the when I was about eighteen and uh, eighteen nineteen, and um, one of the blokes that ran the, the shop with me in Wimbledon. He always he always VHS the young ones, always VHS the young ones. And so we'd finish on a Saturday or whatever night it was on and we'd go and get very, very drunk. Then we'd walk down to his flat in Rains Park and we'd put on the young ones VHS that he'd recorded that week yeah. and eat a massive Chinese meal <laughs> and maybe do other things and yeah. watch the young ones. So, you know, we had a VHS so we could actually delay the watching of it. But it was always that night. So it's, like, it's on. We're going to record it. We're definitely watching it. You know? Yeah, I can remember you know, the days I was going out back in the early 90s and you rely on my mum pressing record. Vic and Bob or something was on <laughs> and you wouldn't relax when you're out you're looking at your watch you should have pressed yeah. it now I I the amount of time have a phone you should it. have pressed it and phoning you're going to press the button <laughs> putting your 10p in the, 10p in the payphone <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely I think I think also I was I was one of those people in the it would have been the late it was when Channel 4 kind of Channel 4 were good at were, uh, putting stand-up mm. on and were good at putting comedy on and you know that guy Mike I can't remember his name now, Mike Miller or something. You know, they were putting on things like um, Sumo and Kabaddi and just off the wall stuff because that yeah. was Channel 4's remix. So you get good comedy on Channel 4 late at night, you know, in those graveyard slots because they thought, well, nobody will watch this. And I was always one of those people that seeked that out. I, I, I've been a massive fan of comedy generally, of people being brilliant, people crafting, you know, because it's, it is, a, it's an absolute craft. And, you know, as you say about the, the, the seriousness, you know, it's an age old thing, but as they say, comedy's a serious business. You know, my old man used to say it, when you hung out with somebody like Eric Morecambe and you, and somebody said, a, you know, a, what would be deemed a funny line, he didn't laugh. He'd look and go, that's very funny. That is very funny. And he'd make a note of it, you know, he, he write, but he would never laugh. He'd just go, yeah, that's funny. And I think that mindset's really interesting it's a really interesting mindset so how did all this kind of lead to the the music production aspect of what you do i mean obviously you say you tinkered you tinkered a little bit on keyboards and uh, vocals yeah. and all that kind of stuff did you have to do any proper training was there like no degrees and all that kind of stuff <laughs> not at all not at all i've i found other people to do that um no i um I was always big into technology. So as soon as there were ways of recording and getting computers to help, I was doing that. And then what I did was anytime I worked anywhere and when I was at the end of the eighties, I was working for Barclays bank, uh, funny enough, driving a van, but they had a video training facility 
so they were making training films for the branches to watch. So, you know, we'd make these films and then they were sent out to all the branches and the, and the uh, staff would watch these films about how to, how to operate an ATM or, or selling basically, usually it was selling, you know, and those videos. And one of the videos was a thing called YQ that this guy was making. He was the graphics guy and it was called YQ. And what happened was you're stood in Barclays bank and on the screen is a video saying YQ, you can now go over here to this thing called an ATM and you can get money out of it and you can put money into it. And it was those early days of, of yeah, yeah. automated, automated telling machines. And I remember chatting to this guy, Paul, and he said, I'm doing this thing. And he said, it needs music on it. I went, I'll do it. I'll do the music. And he was like, okay. So all it was, was this loop of music. And I've, I've got it on a quarter inch somewhere and I, I've never re-spun it. I've never put it on and listened to it. I should do one day, probably awful. But that was the first time somebody sort of commissioned me in inverted commas to do a bit of music for something that was gonna then get shown to the public. So I remember going into a branch and very quietly in the background, I could hear this bit of music noodling and I was really, really excited about it mm. because there were strangers stood there hearing what I'd done in my, mm. in my bedroom, you know, uh, and then always whenever I got a gig. So at the big breakfast, when I befriended Chris, the nature of that show, that show was kind of designed around him. So, so, you know, they, they, they'd see, they got, they'd had him on the radio. He'd been on the radio already on GLR and stuff. And Charlie Mwahidu set up Planet 24 kind of looked at Chris went, so the show's got to work for him because that's his style. And so everything was very knockabout and very, very off the cuff, very, very, very last minute. And lots of ideas would come up with that would then be used the next day on the show. And I just, Kept putting my hand up and saying, well, if you need a jingle, I'll do the jingle. So I'd just run home and sing whatever the thing was we were going to do the next day, you know, in my studio. And that sort of style of <laughs> that crappy style of music, you know, the sort of what's the word, the work, you know, the, the shit made in the shed type sound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, worked for Chris. He liked that. He didn't want it slick and he liked it knockabout. And I think it sort of worked at the time. And and also, you know, in the early 90s, the whole knocking down the fourth wall and the crew being in and that that notion of television, the deconstruction of television that that Planet 24 had been doing with with Network 7 and and, you know, all those and the word, you know, mm. so that so the shonky jingle things sort of seemed to be all right, you know, so I just keep doing loads of those. Then when we went to do Radio 1, same thing happened. Chris and I went. What happened was Chris didn't want us to sound like Radio 1 because at yeah. the time it was all very enfant terrible and he was raging against the machine. <laughs> and um, so the so the jingles, I said, look, I'll do all the jingles and I'll do them how we would do them. That's what we wanted to do. And by that point, I knew what his style was and he knew what I'd mm. create. And so that's so again, I, I'm musical, but I, I don't play brilliantly. Um, but also, I think going back to what I said at the start, my understanding of possibly of meter and cutting out the fat in a sentence or in a lyric, you know, and, and get into the cut into the quick, and especially with comedy. You know, if you watch com great comedians, great stand ups, it's like they're singing. You know, I mean, you if you, I mean, there's a great uh, comedian called Anthony Jeselnik who has there's an album called Shakespeare that he did. It's phenomenal. I urge you to go and listen to it if you like slick American. He's a young, cool American stand up. And Shakespeare's like listening to songs, the way he he's honed the, the, the punchlines and the jokes. And, you know, when he repeats something, he's not repeating it because he's, for, you know, messed up. He's repeating it because he knows he's got to repeat it so that you know what's going on and you know when he gets to the punchline, you were reminded. And, and all that intricacy is brilliant. And I think a lot of that was what, what I found fun about writing jingles and stuff like that and 
trying to do things in 30 seconds, which seems to have ended up being my, that sounded wrong, didn't it? Because that could have been personal. Um, <laughs> so again, and then, uh, so the Radio 1 thing, I just did all the, I said, I'll do all the jingles. You know, we, we didn't want it to sound like the cool new Radio 1 as well. We wanted it to sound like us. And then I'll keep going until you stop me. Uh, okay. You know, <laughs> when, when we were all famously asked to leave the radio show, I'll say, in 2001, I kind of thought, I'm not going to stay in radio because I'd finished now Virgin and Radio One and with Chris. And it was like, I've just done two of the most high profile breakfast shows in the UK. What am I going to do? No disrespect to anybody else in radio because I absolutely adore radio. And if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably go straight back into radio if I had to choose something because they are brilliant people in radio. But I thought, what am I going to do? I, I can't do a kind of afternoon. I don't know. I just didn't want to do another show. I, mm -hmm. I got courted by one guy who's very famous who uh, <laughs> said I was winging it in the interview, which was really funny, and then offered <laughs> me the job, which I turned down. Um, so I thought, you know what? I've been writing music for these TV shows, and I'm sort of getting away with it here. I'll just crack on. And also, my black book was full of lots and lots of very, very good people in the industry by that point. By mm. 2001, I'd been in the industry long enough. Now all those people have bought and sold their TV companies, but at that point, we were all you know, forging ahead. So I had a really good contacts book. And I think, you know, as we well know, certainly with what I do as a media composer and, yeah. and, you know, I try and stress that to young composers and kids who want to get into the music industry, you know, certainly with what I do, the people I knew was really useful. It's know. all about networking, isn't it? It really is. And yeah, you know, and if I'm going to, you know, talking about being a media composer, the, the, the musical ability thing starts slipping down quite quickly hmm. as you realise to get the gigs and to land the gigs and to get repeat gigs. There's a lot of other things you've got to do, like selling, like speaking the right language, which is yeah. which again is very important for me moving forward with writing TV music and then working with Jim and Bob and all that kind of stuff is mm. speaking their language so that they feel safe with you and they feel like you understand what they want. And especially with music for comedy, music for, for sketch shows and stuff, you know, it's that understanding of what the comedy is and yeah. not the music taking over. So yeah, so 2001, I kind of went, right, I'm going to write music for TV in anger. And that's and that was, I, I had to, yeah, I started making phone calls. Before we move on from the Chris Evans years, I recommend to the listeners to listen to your podcast series you did during lockdown, I guess, Dan? It, it, uh, I think it was just after, I think it was just when we could all get back together again. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, called uh, Breaking Breakfast, is that right? Which, which yes, covers yes. those years in great detail, which is brilliant. Yes, and, and I got, what, what was lovely about that was I got a lot of people in the industry messaging me afterwards, just going, we got into that because of you. I got into radio because of you guys. You know, that show was seminal. That show... You know, it was sitting in the car waiting for you to finish a bit before we got out and went to school yeah. or work. And those sort of things are just wonderful to hear because, yeah. you know, you go with all its ups and downs. If you asked me to do that again, that show would absolutely do it exactly the same way. It was it was a it was a brilliant time. And, and it's lovely to have people listen to that podcast and go, yeah, I, I that, you know, I was with you. No, I won't, I won't tell a story, but it's worth listening for people to find out how Dan ended up on uh, primetime TV on a Friday night with a big band behind him, pretty much <laughs> singing a postcode. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, this, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, when you go to your grave, what will you be remembered for? <laughs> and there's going to be probably Strictly Come Dancing, the thing. Montage. <laughs> and a fucking postcode for DJ. It's, yeah, I'm good, because people come up to me. The other, the other one was, funny enough, I, uh, and we'll get, maybe we can touch on this, is... I met this program director of a radio station a few years back 
to talk about something entirely unrelated. And I told him what I'd ever up to. And he went, you did Ecky Thump and Grind. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, which was one of George Dawes' songs, you know. <laughs> you did that. I was like, yeah, yeah, I did it with Matt Lucas. Yeah, because then it, <laughs> and it was like, so I was famous for that in his world. But yeah, a, a postcode. But you know, <laughs> don't knock it. You'll take it. Can we move on to when you uh, first started working with uh, Reeves and Mortimer? How did that come about? Yeah, uh, well, so I, so just a little adjunct to that. Uh, I, what happened was it, when I started writing music for TV, I also had an idea at the time to write a load of music for kids. I had two very small kids and uh, I wanted to write songs for kids that adults wouldn't hate because we were driving the car with the wheels on the bus on a cassette, you know, and it's driving me mad. And I was thinking my son, your pain have been there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and my son was listening to Eminem and he was like seven or something. I can't remember. And I was thinking kids actually will, will listen to some, any music. They don't have to be fed very, very sort of square major scale stuff. And so I teamed up with this guy called Josh Phillips and, and, and I was introduced to him through Roland, this friend of ours at Roland keyboards. And I said, I'm trying to write this album of songs, but I don't know. I'm not a great songwriter, you know, and it'd be good to collab with somebody. So I met this guy, Josh in the pub and he went, Oh, I write music. And he, Josh at the time was in a, in a band called Procol Harum uh, and was in played keyboards in big country back in the eighties. And I was like, I like things like David Bowie and tears of fears. And he went, yeah, so do I. And I went, okay, well let's like write an album of songs for kids. Because, of course, lyrically, by that point, I'd been writing loads of jingles. But we, wa I wanted, or we wanted the tracks to sound like Bowie, you know, Pink Floyd, make it more kind of, you know, that kind of world. So Josh's, Josh's lineage of prog rock, when, we came, when I came to work with Jim and Bob, became very useful because, of course, oh, yeah. Yeah. very, you know, without fail, they're, they're proggers, those two. So um, I teamed up with Josh in about 2000 and two, three. By that point, I'd already, uh, my wife, Lisa had set up a company called Pet Productions with Bob because my wife had been asked to exec produce or produce. And I can't remember what series it was. It would have been about series three of shooting stars or series four. Series maybe. four, I think the Will Self, Johnny Vegas. Oh, that's it. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. So it was, yeah, Will and Johnny on it. That's right. And so it's series four. And they started on that and they set up their production company nearby where we were living. And Lisa came back to me and said to me, look, there's a character on the show called George Dawes. I was like, yeah, I know. And she said, um, the guy that does George Dawes is no longer working with the guy that was doing the music for him. And I was like, okay. And, and she said, so would you be interested in, you know, helping him do these tracks? And I was like, of course. So I met with Matt Lucas. I think I met with him, or I got a dat. I basically got a dat from him, and on the dat was this piano solo piano. Ding, da ding, da ding, da ding, da ding, 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 da ding, 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 ding. And Matt said to me, "You know, can you just make that not, you know, more than just a piano?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." So I did that bit of music, and I can't remember what else I did. I was trying to look around that time of those series whether there would have been other stuff, and there probably was. Whether we did baked potato and those things around that time, I can't remember. They might have been yeah. like a second series. I was trying to get the lineage. And if you give me two seconds, I've got a kind of, I won't play them, uh, but I've tried to write it out so I could remember for you. Yeah, so that was about 2002. And we did Peanuts and then Ecky Thump and Grind, which was that sort of colliery band style 
Hip hop is the best, rap is the thing. I'm crazy for Jay Z, bling bling bling. You know, um, and brilliant, brilliant words. They're so good. And um, so Matt would kind of go, "There it is." But I wanted to sound like this. Peanuts are kind of a why. But here's the thing about peanuts. So I needed. I had no brass samples. I had. I I didn't have a brass section or the budget for it. So I needed brass samples. And what those are, are real live brass sounds that you then put into your computer and you can play them back and hopefully they sound like a brass section. Mm. So I found this disc called Super, Super Section Brass, this, this CD, which I bought off a website. And I had to record all the individual brass lines, audio tracks off the CD into my sampler, as it was known in, in a sampler. And I did it, got them all in. And then I did that Peanuts track and off it went. And, you know, it was a now legendary moment on that show. Yeah. The brass samples that I bought are the same brass samples that are in the Strictly Come Dancing theme tune to this day. Because, <laughs> because when we did the Strictly theme, sorry, I digress slightly, but it is all related. Yeah. Um, when we did the Strictly theme in 2004, we went to Olympic Studios and we recorded Laurie Holloway's orchestra because Laurie Holloway was the MD on the show when mm. it launched. And with the greatest respect to Laurie and his band, halfway through the recording session, I won't say who, somebody in the team said to me, this doesn't sound like your demo. And I said, well, it won't. This is, this is Laurie Holloway's band. You know, this is what a real live bunch of people playing that, thing, that tune we sent you sounds like. And then we wanted to sound more like your demo and it had what you know sometimes referred to as demo-itis where you try and better it and you can't the demo is always the best thing yeah. it's what everybody bought into and um so we went we stayed there till five in the morning once laurie had gone and everyone else had gone and josh and i put back in all the elements that we created for the strictly theme including those awful awful brass sounds i think but yeah. there's a sound to them and even yeah. now even now, t nearly 20 years later, on a Saturday night, it's those shonky peanuts brass sounds <laughs> that are in the Strictly, one of the most famous BBC TV theme tunes. Anyway, so that was that. So I then was, I was then in the sort of shooting stars fold. As I say, I go back, I was a fan. So this was very exciting because mm. then it was like, you know, well, I, I wish I could remember what the first things were that, that I did, but oh, oh, the most incredible car. So, oh, yes. so in that, they had this thing called the most incredible car. And there we go, ladies and gentlemen, let's put our hands together and stand up for the most incredible car. And this battery operated car would come on, which had an arse. They put an arse on this car yeah. and, it, and it fired things out of the bumhole. <laughs> and as it came on, this music, it's the most incredible car. <laughs> and that's my mate, Stuart Crichton, who's now living in LA and writes songs for Kylie and shit like that. <laughs> he and I got together. Those were early days. That's why I did the Jonathan Ross theme tune with him. I said to Stuart, I'm working on this show called Shooting Stars and there's some bits and bobs I'm doing. Do you want to help me? And so Stuart did that with me. So those were the first little bits and bobs that came to me. And yeah, but and, and at that point, it was really stuff being sent to me. And I wasn't, Jim and Bob weren't coming to the studio yet. So right. that was, yeah, that was early, early, early 02. That was 2002 around that time. Thanks again to to Matt Lucas for us to use the uh, the Peanuts tune as our theme. If you search it up on YouTube, you can see the hysterics that Jim and Bob are having because they didn't, they never knew, you know, and it's always the best way to do it. You don't tell each other what you're going to do half the time. Yeah. And they had no idea what he was going to do. 
so when he did that it was just a pinnacle of you know it was just yeah the the, the looks on their faces and the stifling of the laughter is brilliant yeah well apparently matt is was he was he hears vick and bob start laughing behind him he's he's got his arms behind his back and he's flicking in the v's apparently which sets <laughs> them off even more which sets him off and yeah fingers crossed we'll be speaking to matt soon but uh and of course that was the um first appearance of his Lou costume or Andy, which character was he? He was <laughs> Andy, it. wasn't he? He was wasn't he Andy? That's <laughs> Andy, right. Yeah. That was the, the, gen- the genesis of that character. Yeah. Yeah. So then it was like I think then I was getting thrown things like backing tracks. So there was a run of backing tracks that I did where they did things like "Those Were the Days," uh, "The Power of Love," uh, "Frankie," "This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us." Mm. And like the, those were the days thing involved. I'm not sure I should involve them surrounding Ulrika while this piece of music, she sang those were the days they surrounded Ulrika. And I, I won't say any more than that. It's, it's, it's out there. Uh, if you've got, if you're, if you're interested in music licensing, sometimes it's better to get a new backing track made because it creates a new master. It gets around a lot of licensing issues and, mm. and, and rights problems. So I, I create, and I really enjoyed it because I was having to work out how Sparks had made those sounds. And I did Virginia Plain as well, oh, yeah. uh, which which they did as a, as a Roxy Music piss take. And funnily enough, it was on it was on Twitter or something. And I tweeted that I'd done the backing track. And Danny Baker just said, you know, you mustn't forget that Jim, huge Roxy Music fan. And as much as he's pissing about on it, he's trying not to because he's there's such a reverence for that band and that music, you know. Yeah. So yeah. when you watch it, he, although he's messing about, you know, doing the sort of fairy piss take, he's like, you know, he doesn't want to. Johnny Vegas is Brian Eno, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is obvious. When you think Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the cerebral Brian Eno. <laughs> So the theme to shooting stars was a Pete Bakey, I think, wasn't the great Pete Bakey. So that's but you did go on to make some other themes with um with Vic and Bob further on. Did, did you work on we, did the we Ministry did, of Curious Stuff? One of yours. Well, so we did the Ministry of Curious Stuff, yeah. So so by that point, yeah, we were we were so so Josh Phillips, as I say, he and I were writing together. And so and I you know, and I must uh say right now, you know, without him, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about would never have been as brilliant as it was. He's a phenomenal musician, Josh. And so, uh, so the dynamic would be, uh, in fact, the old place was a, was a kind of proper Reeves and Mortimer hive because Jim and Bob would be in the kitchen talking to my wife about various things and drinking tea and doing Mm. stuff. And then they'd come through to the studio, which was in our garage and carry on for another hour or two with, the music for the show as well so it was a very sort of Reeves and Mortimer uh you know hot hub uh, office scenario and I remember Bob the first time I worked with Bob and I said do you want a cup of tea Bob and uh, he went yeah great yeah yeah and I said how many sugars do you want he said can I have have nine and I went and I was like oh you're always joshing you are you're always being funny he went no 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 I want nine sugars I've had to cut it down from 12 (laughs) because he he used I was like that's that's a cup of sugar with some tea in it, you know? <laughs> so uh, the dynamic was they would come in and I would start trying to, uh, uh, Bob's very organized. And you know, that, that is reflected in the amount of conversations my wife has been having with him today about gone fishing. She's been on the phone all morning and he's very organized. And, and it's the one that's sort of driving it forward. And then Jim, obviously not, 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 you know, unremarkably is, is, 
jumping around and doing mad stuff. But, mm. you know, with all these things, um, so, so that was the kind of thing. So Bob, they'd have a, they'd have a plan and they go, these are the eight songs we want to do for this series, or these are the four we know we've got. And we'll come back in a couple of weeks with the other ones. They'd have a title and it would say something like Puff Daddy or Henry the eighth or, or ask Kit Waltz, or we'd end up calling it ask Kit Waltz. Cause they go, it's got to go like this. And while it goes like this, I'm going to go like, and they'd act out in front of us what they were going to do on stage or on the show. We did a lot of live stuff for their live series, live mm. um, shows with them as well afterwards. And then we would go, right, how long has it got to last? Well, I don't know. It's got to be about six kicks and then <laughs> one slap. And I've got to say, you know, or whatever. And so Josh would sit at the piano and kind of, and they would try it, you know. And then I'd say to Josh, I think you need to cut a bar there. And then, you know, you know that that's too clever that music's now too so josh has got every chord under the book and under the sun in his bag because he's a prog rocker mm. and any prog rockers will try and play every single chord yeah. every single song <laughs> and i'd say to him you know it's got to be more dumb than that or more simple or whatever so that was our dynamic always with me and josh was like he'd go what this and i go nearly but i would go back there now because we don't need to show off with the music you know and that i think that that um understanding what the music's doing for something like that is a really important part of it. And we got it quite quickly, which is why they obviously came back to us repeatedly to do the music. And usually what you do is you go, right, just write a straightforward piece of blues or something, because we don't need to be putting in swanny whistles unless they ask us, mm. because the music's just got to be this utility thing that gives them a platform to do whatever they're doing on top of. Yeah. My old man said when he was directing somebody like Peter Sellers, you know, always stay on the wide. A lot of the, a lot of TV directors are cutting around and they like doing all this, showing off how good they are. But when you're filming comedy and something like Peter Sellers, just stay on the wide because that's what it is. That's all you, you're getting them. Don't you, they don't, you know, and it's the same with the music. You sort of leave, leave the music on in the wide, you know, and it's about them. It's not about the music. So that was the sort of dynamic where, you know, they would come in and say, <laughs> which is what the, the joy of it is just Jim coming in or Bob and going, it's called Puff Daddy, and it goes like this. And then they'd sing these lyrics. I'm sorry, I don't have the lyrics. I should have trolled them up. <laughs> Puff Daddy, da, 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 da. and they'd sing this, and they'd sing it with proper gusto because they, you know, they knew they're trying to sell it to you. You know, they're selling yeah. the idea to you. So we'd go, okay. So we would literally sketch out the chords and then go, right, you know, we'll send you it in a day when we've done it. So we'd, what we'd do is then we'd work them up into something that was going to sound like a rock thing. Yeah. And then you do the bits and bobs around it. So you kind of say to them, how are you coming on to it? So they'd be like, well, we, we're going to walk on. And then, right, so you don't need 30 seconds at the start. You literally need four seconds. Yeah. And it was, so you'd have the sort of utility parts of the music, which again, I'd got very good at learning doing t radio jingles because with a radio jingle, you come off a record, it starts, it stops, you go into an ad break or you go into a record and it, it's got to do a, it's got a very utility job. You know, it, it's got, people have got to know what's going on. So that, that was a sort of dynamic for us where Josh would just look at me and go, what is this all about? And I go, I don't think you need to question it. We just need to do what we can do. And then, yeah, you know, then you'd get notes from Bob. Bob's brilliant because Bob would come back with really good notes based on it again, right? At this point, I think you need to do this here and that needs. The other thing about them is they're, they'd sing it in three keys with half bars and everything. So 
in the same way, when I worked with Chris Evans and Danny Baker on TFI Friday back in the 90s, Danny would phone me and go, right, we're doing a thing on TFI this evening because I'd be home in my, in my house in North London. Danny would phone me from the studios and say, we're doing a thing this afternoon, tonight on the show. It's called, I don't know, the, the, wooden, the Woodpecker Song or whatever. And this is how it goes. He's a wooden bird with purple hair. He's stuck to the pole and he can't go nowhere. He's a wooden bird with lots of style. When he bangs his beak, it makes you want to style. Well, dun, dun, dun. That was, that, Danny would sing that down the phone to me and I'd hold my dictaphone up like that. Then I'd put the phone down. I'd have to make it into something and then it would go on, on a cassette, on a dat, on a bike. Best thing about that is there was no email, so you couldn't be told it was yeah. shit. <laughs> and so Bob would do that. Bob would come back and go, here's all my thoughts on it. But also sometimes we'd get sung jingles from them down the phone or, or and like I say, they'd be in all the, they'd start in C and then finish in G and they'd be half bars. <laughs> and Josh and my job was to kind of go, did they do that half bar because they think it's funny? Or just did they do that half bar because they just weren't, concentrating on what they were doing do they know musically that doesn't yeah. work and is that a conscious comedic decision and that's those sort of things are really mm. important and i'd have to phone bob and go you go da, 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 ba, ba, you know whatever it was did you mean to do that uh i don't know right no you didn't fine that's okay you know and so and but that's the joy of working with them i, I think the something i was going to say was and i listened to dan skinner the lovely dan skinner on your podcast one of the most loveliest people in the world Are you really? and he's yeah and and he touched on something and it reminded me that my dad always used to say it. my dad's a brilliant uh, artist he, he taught art at glasgow school of art as well in his younger days mm. again it all comes together doesn't it you find people that, that can paint jim you know it's that thing it's their first loves and they these things come together and my old man um said you know when you go and see a, a modern art exhibition you go and see picasso and whatever it is people point it and they go i could have done that and my old man would always go yeah but you haven't and i think there's two things here one is with with uh jim and bob's comedy out of this too too highbrow it's a bit like modern art where they know the rules and they know how to break them so they they already know the rules if you see jim painting he knows the rules mm. right and the same with comedy and they know how to break them so when you when you're told it's called you know jesus guitar chord or something they know why they're doing that. They've already got to this other alpha state that they're in that makes their what they do work for them. And I think that whole thing of like, I could do that. Yeah, but you haven't. You can look at them yeah. and go, yeah, but they're just fucking about. And it's like, no, they're not. They're so not messing about. You know, that. and I think that's when you're working with them and doing music, it's the joy is, is seeing that stuff, is, is seeing them uh, in the demo period, the demo stage. Mm. They're writing the demos with you, which is really nice. The comedy demo as much as the music demo. It's about having that form of communication, though, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You're speaking a certain language that you both understand to, yeah. to get to a certain point. Yeah. Or, or, you know, or it gets a laugh. You know, if you're, if you're messing about in the studio and you do something and, and, he, and Jim goes, hang on, try, try this, do this. And he does something and everybody laughs. Right. Leave it in. It's, it's done. It got yeah. a laugh. Let's move on. Don't question. Look at, um, we were talking to Tony Way about... Um, when he had to dress up as Henry VIII, for Henry VIII is, is capable of flight. Yeah. Uh, as you say, it's 30, 40 seconds of screen time, the costumes, the dance routines for the backing dancers, the details gone into that music for what other people would have been a throwaway. It's not even a sketch. It's an intro to a panel show. Yes. <laughs> it's just yes. crazy. The amount of detail that goes into it. Completely. And I think, but that's, 
yeah and i think but that that hopefully is why it works even if you don't know why it works mm. it's like good music good music there's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of little things that go into what potentially eventually sounds quite simple and mm. and you go well that was quite simple that thing i like that that two minutes of of pop i love pop music pop music's great because pop music's really hard it's very difficult to write pop good pop hits if everybody knew how to write good pop hits, we'd all be doing it. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about them. We'd all be writing them incessantly to try and make loads of money. And I think that's, Trevor Horn said it, the great thing about pop is, it's not the same genre all the time. He said, you hear, listen to one jazz record, once you've heard one, you've heard them all. Pop's constantly changing, you know? Mm-hmm. And their, their pop culture, their, their way of doing things, there's lots of little nuances and lots of little tweaks and things, aren't there? And as you say, when we did the Henry VIII music, we would have listened to that a million times, me and Josh, to, probably playing with prog things and little let's put that in and let's put that in and at the end of the day as you say it's just tony <laughs> tony flying around in a kirby wire with a bit of music play that, that nobody probably cares about the music but if <laughs> but if the music was slightly wrong and you hadn't made the effort or, vi- or in any of it you'd see it and you go there's something i didn't think was very good about that i yeah. think that's the, point, mm. you know. the attention to detail yeah yeah the layers yeah, yeah so you went on to work with a lot of um, other shows uh lucky sexy winners House yes of Fools. I think didn't Dan Skinner said that was probably one of the funniest shows he's ever seen or you know you think and I one luck yeah it's like um House of Fools I mean that is when I met Matt Berry which is a whole other podcast probably because he's (laughs) Matt but Matt Matt and I bonded over uh, analog synthesizers and he now (laughs) texts me pictures of synthesizers (laughs) I get these texts from like Canada while he's out shooting what they do in the shadows what he's doing and it's like a it's like a Roland Jupiter 8 and I'm like they're 30,000 pounds Matt he's like yeah I just bought one or whatever he doesn't you know <laughs> but I love so I love Matt Matt's fantastic and one of those episodes I think it's the Phil Collins episode oh, yeah. I was lying on the sofa at home watching it I think I'd seen it already no I hadn't we, we were watching it because it was on and I, I I was physically laughing out loud at it which you know a lot of us don't generally laugh properly out loud at TV shows much some people do but I don't and I texted Jim and just went, this is the funniest thing I think I've ever seen. Cause it was, it was just truly. And I luckily knew the guy that was in it and could say to him at that point, this is absolutely brilliant. It was the Phil Collins one. I'll have to watch it again. It yeah. just killed me. I probably, cause I, maybe it's cause I know them. I don't know, but I hope other people thought the same. Cause it was house of fools was just ridiculous. And that, yeah. yeah so we did things like uh, the day we went to Bangor, we had to keep repeating that piece of music. <laughs> So they could all sing their own, you know, Bosch had one and Beef had one and uh, is it Julie? And yeah. um, and so we had to repeat the day we had to went to Bangor and like and put extra bars and shit like that in it because they'd have they'd, they'd have more words because their name was longer or whatever. Yeah. And then we did the incidentals. So we did the sort of Terry and June, link, link, blah, 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 sort of you know in, interstitial, yeah. yeah, the interstitial music to get you from one scene to the other, which were lovely to do. And had I known Matt better at that point, probably would have said to him, come over because I was working for music publishers a while back and we did this sort of quiz show album, like a game show quiz show album of music. And um, I said to Matt, will you do a track for it? And so he did a track for this album and as a kind of favor to me, but he recreated it in a very, in his class, in that sort of seventies style. And he uses all the sort of uh, vibraphones and there's there's combinations of instruments that when you put them all together, it sounds like some others do have or Terry and June or whatever. It just sounds like those fantastic 
uh, classic 70s sitcom music. So, yeah, we did those interstitials. And then I can't remember what else. There was, I'm trying to see if I can, if I can find it. We're trying to think when it was. But we did, um, yeah, there was lots of little bits and bobs in that again, which was always the case. It would always be there's three bits this week, there's four bits that week. And we'd have mm. to decipher what the hell they were. What the... <laughs> I like I say, written down here, it says Jesus guitar chord. So that must have been like Jesus on the screen or something. And there was a dang pork pie whip. Oh, yes. So, so yeah. <laughs> what was that? I can't remember. There was something called pork pie whip and Bangor beef bosh, Eric Judy. That's right. So we had to do all the, for Daniel Simonson as well, we had to do yeah, all the, yeah, yeah. Their, their little things. That's it. It's all about Brilliant. having that language, isn't it? You know, that you you knew how each, how each other works, you know? I guess so. And I think... I think it is that that uh, knowing how to get something that will work in eight seconds sometimes, you know, doing something that's three seconds and not building your part, you know, that I think because I'm not a, because I'm not a mega muso and a, and a player, I'm not interested in showing off at how good I am. I'm, I'm more interested in trying to get the job done and move on to the next one. So I think that works mm. when it comes to things like this, because you don't need to dwell on it. So we're not reinventing the wheel here and we're not doing anything, you know, massively highbrow. And I know I've said, you know, the, the effort goes in and, and love and attention goes in, but my ability to kind of go, that's it. That'll be fine with Josh. And, you know, when we're working together, we'll move on. Or we've got 30 things to do. We need to crack on, you know, cause they're all, all so right. yeah, that, my my hard drive is just full of things with ridiculous names like that. With House of Fools, you know how a traditional British sitcom would have sounded and looked in the eighties, and it's just putting a Dick and Bob twist on that. I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, though, I think you know you don't want the music to stand in the way. Um, so I think just you know the the some of that was that sort of nod to those days, the rising damp days, going back to Leonard Rossiter. Sometimes you just want to do that and tell that story. It, because everyone can put their own Vic and Bob irony over the top of it, I guess, in a way. I mean, there's one thing we did. Um, so we did. Uh, 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 we had the tour just after that, 2015. They did the tour, and we we worked on a load of stuff for them on that. Things like the Mulligan and O'Hare tracks, which we sort of updated and and played around with. And then I think we did six new ones, which was again as a fan, for to be writing Mulligan and O'Hare tracks for them was brilliant. Because I'm like, God, I just remember watching them do this, you know, on the telly. Mm. And we did Brother Barry, Policeman's Parade. There were a load of others that we did. Uh, and uh, <laughs> there's one called Potatoes and Three Asdas. I don't know. Eight, eight or eight tits and pants fall down. <laughs> Which was, pants fall down was brilliant, wasn't that? Was that Kanye West in his underpants? Yeah. I can't yeah. remember. Yes. Well, my Dick and Bob's big night out as well. Kanye you know? West in his underpants. Um <laughs> So Pants Fall Down was a different one. I think Pants Fall Down might have been something to do with Simon Cowell because they're obsessed with taking the piss out of Simon Cowell. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we did the Mulligan and O'Hare tracks. But so uh, I had to go back and kind of find a piece of music. They were like, they lost it or whatever. Somebody lost it. And they were like, could you retrieve it? And I had to go back to the actual project in my computer um, to, to do something to this thing. I think it wasn't a Oh no, that's right. So I went back and found this piece of music, the, the recording, the, the stereo recording on the hard drive. And I hit play preview to listen to it. I can't remember what the music was. And it got about nine seconds in and then it just went <coughs> like, like the MP3 had been um, distorted and yeah. corrupted. And I was like, shit, I've, I've, it's all corrupted. I'm going to have to go back into the, into the project and remix it down or rebounce it out which shouldn't be too hard but i'll go in there and do it because i can't send them that 
and went back into the project. And sure enough, eight seconds in, all this noise and grunting is there. It's, it's, <laughs> and I'd forgotten that Jim had gone just put in that. Yeah. And I was like, well, what is that? I think I was, I was listening through sounds on the hard drive. You know, you can go through lots of different sounds when you've got um, Logic and lots of these, these software music platforms. You can kind of go through, you know, down all the sounds. Yeah. And, the, and the, I found all these sounds and Jim's just like, put those in. And I was like, but they don't make any sense. And he's like, doesn't matter. So I put these fucking noises in that were just ridiculous. And when I went back, I'd forgotten. And I was like, God, that sums up working with those two because <laughs> it's a beautiful piece of music. Then there's just out. mayhem, just mayhem. And then, and then a bit more music, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. So just thinking about your early synth days, that, influence the work that um that bob did on vic and bob's big night didn't he have a synth duo some sort of pet shop boys well, pastiche we did that i had to do well i had to do the uh what did we do we did a pet shop boys pastiche that there's that you know where bob does that and i but i just had to recreate that i think that and it wasn't very synthy that but when we did um ministry of curious stuff that was great fun because that was because it was BBC, it had to be a bit more grown up, the music, and a bit more sort of, you know, uh, grown up, I guess. It just had For to... a kid's show, had, yeah. It, had, it was a kid's show, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, again, I think all the ridiculous stuff I'd done through my career, writing music for kids' shows, I was quite excited about, you know, certainly lyrically. Mm. So Jim had done, done the lyrics, um, and but he did one called, I think it's Space Ape. I think it's called Space Ape. Space Ape, Space Ape. Ape. Space Ape, Space Ape, Space Ape, Space Ape, Space Private, Private, Monkey Style, Space Cruiser, Flying so high, lift your ass up high, Into Manana, Mitra, Bagel, Banana, Space Ape, Space Ape, Guardian of the Future, Astral Primate, 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 Monkey Style Space Cruiser, Flying so high, mit your air supply, Into Manana, mit a bag of banana, Space Ape, Space Ape, Don't let us down, Humanity depends on you. Yes, and we yes. did it in a craft work style. So I literally said to Josh, "Right, you sit there," and I just got all the synths up and was like coming up with you know squelchy bass lines and and it, and it was great because we you know we, we just kept it very simple because all that music was. But that was literally like just coming up with with synth lines and, and stuff like that. The the problem with there's a there's an issue with stuff like analog eighties synthesizers. Which if you want me to talk about analog eighties synthesizers, <laughs> I'll do it on a whole other podcast. And again, that's why Matt Berry and I bonded because he's like, I'm going to buy a CS80, which is the synth that Vangelis famously used, you know, as which links back to Matt paying Vangelis on shooting, yes. <laughs> on shooting stars <laughs> and saying nothing but smoking a cigar, I think. Um, is the tr problem with 80s synthesizers is when you put them into pieces of music, it starts sounding like the 80s, unless you're kind of Bruno Mars or Calvin Harris, and you've worked out how to not sound like the 80s with classic pieces of kit. So funnily enough, if you're doing music for Vic and Bob, unless it's got to sound retro, 
pulling out synthesizers is a difficult one because it's because they're very the sound of them is very prescriptive it's it, immediately you hear it you go well that sounds like the pet shop boys or oh, that's vince clark isn't it that's depeche mode hmm. unless you you know unless you, you're doing something very specific so funnily enough that kit doesn't really make much of an appearance in in these sort of things you end up going very much down the old classic drums bass guitars because that's what they're you know that's what makes sense for them i think but yeah the hmm. space ape track i think was was very sort of analog and synthy. I can't remember what else, but the, those tracks of Ministry of Curious Stuff, we were really proud of those. Cooking Up Shoes and Cat's Dispatch I'd written down. It's like Cooking Up Shoes is just this little sort of, you know, groovy cooking up shoes. And Jim, you know, as we all know, I had Born Free. I had the 12 inch vinyl of Born Free, which I bought before I ever met them. So, um, you know, he's he will croon to the cows come up. He loves to sing, really loves yeah. to sing and and, you know, loves to record himself singing and and so he came over for the for, for the Ministry of Curious Stuff things. We got him over to put all the guide vocals down. Getting them both in the studio to do guide vocals is impossible. Um, <laughs> and I, so lots of those things, lots of the Vic and Bob music, there's tons of versions with me singing the top line, which I'll never put out because they're awful. Because uh, it's usually a sketch so that I can send it to them and go, is this what you mean? And then, I, then we can write the music underneath. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, but but Jim was really into the Ministry of Curious stuff, and I can't remember if Dan came over. But you know that, that I think they sang them all live eventually on the show. But but mm. we yeah we put and I think they're all up on SoundCloud. I think I put them all up there eventually, just so that if people wanted to hear them. But so yeah, yeah I put I put a link. I, every now and then I put things up if I don't think I'm going to get in trouble, and they're not. You know somebody hasn't had a Benny about them or anything or said that's mine or whatever. But um, so the Ministry mm. of Curious stuff, yeah, it was good. It was a, it was a, enjoyable doing that show. Uh, and it was yeah it was good it was good fun pieces of music eclectic pieces of music yeah even yeah. like the lounge singer thing that uh, <laughs> jim used to do Sorry. and it sparked this we've whole done thing. A, yeah we've done a few of those as well i wish i could remember which ones we did but we what we would george melly or something we would have done all the all the underscores all the all the backing tracks for jim's um normally it's just a drum beat so normally it was george wasn't it just going yeah. da, 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 and he'd just be whatever it was <laughs> but i you know i had a total empathy with that having sung that 4dj jingle you know in a stanley unwin style which is what we yeah. were doing i you know me and chris were huge fans of stanley unwin so we were like let's do that like stanley unwin that's a funny voice yeah <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned matt berry and now is this an urban myth that it appears to be on the internet because I've, I've seen interviews with yourself talking about the Strictly theme, to, theme tune, but I've also read that Matt Berry, either he's claiming it or others are claiming on his behalf, that is him doing the shouts on the Strictly theme tune and playing um, an a, a, a acoustic guitar underneath. Yeah. It, so yes and, yes and no is the, <laughs> is the answer to that. If you go to America and you watch Dancing with the Stars, the American version of Strictly Come Dancing, in effect, the spin-off, which started in 2006. We reworked the theme tune around 2016, I think it was, something like that. The, the producers in America came to me and went, we want to put the theme in. They'd taken it out. They'd taken it out of the show. And they were going from the ad break into Dua Lipa or whatever it was. And they went, we think, British producers said to me, we think the theme tune to that show is integral to the success of it in the UK. It's all part of the world of that show. It's all part of the style and the feel and, you know, the homeliness of it. We can't, and I think the American show was, was losing ratings. And they said, so we want to put the theme tune back in, use it again and more, more so on the American show. So me and Josh were like, nice. And um, so we reworked it. 
and we went back and got a brass section in and we went to a studio in Kent that Matt uses a lot as well because the guy's got loads of analog gear and loads of old gear that makes everything sound lovely and warm and original. So Matt, Matt Berry goes and records there and um, uh, Rimshot Studios. And so we reworked the theme, got a few quid off the BBC, put real brass, real people onto it. So it's a slightly different arrangement. If you hear it in America, it's just a slightly different, a slightly different groove. And then I was on the phone to Matt about something, I can't remember what it was. We were talking about something else. And he said, what are you up to at the moment? I said, oh, I'm, I'm reworking the theme tune to Strictly. Now, Matt's mum, massive fan of the show. And previously, I sent her a video about doing the theme because it's a long story. I said, I'm reworking the theme tune to Strictly, but you know, Dancing with the Stars in America. And he went, please let me play on it. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> OK, well, why don't you like record a bit of Moog or something like that? Like, just record a bit of synth or something and I'll, and I'll put it into the mix. Then you can tell your mates you're on the theme tune to Dancing with the Stars. So I said, that's right. And then I just said to him, and then I emailed him and went, look, I've just thought of what you should do. You, I did the, hey, ho, that's me on the UK one. It's still me on the UK one. So on a Saturday night, when you hear that theme tune, that's me. But I said to him, you should do the, hey, ho, because that would be really funny. Because of course he's got that voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got that marvelous voice. So I'm going to digress again, because I'll start talking about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place in a minute. But um, <laughs> so, so he sent me over this wild moog line that went weird and little. I was like, I can't use that. The producers just go, that's impossible. What the hell is that? <laughs> and but I said, but I used his hey and ho. So in America, it's him going hey ho <laughs> in the theme tune. He's not that's playing awesome. guitar, but I'll tell you the reason why that. And this is very very boring. I did an, an, an award acceptance TikTok type thing for ASCAP in America who are the, like the PRS in the UK, you've got ASCAP in America, and they mm. get, gave us an award for the theme tune to Dancing with the Stars. So it's, it's, anyway, so I did this acceptance thing because it was locked down and I couldn't, we couldn't go to the awards. And I said, and so I did one of those kind of Charlie Puth type things where I went, imagine if you had a bass line that went like this, dun, 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 you know, cut to the bass line, imagine if I had a guitar, blah, blah, blah. So I did this thing like that. And at the end of it, I said, put it all together and you get an award for it, right? That was my thing. But in it, I said, then I get my friend Matt to go, hey, so I show the screen and you can see it says Matt Hayes or whatever. And then I said, and then put a bit of guitar on. And that wasn't him. I was just moving on with the video, but everybody now <laughs> thinks he played guitar. So he didn't do the guitar. He did do the Hayes. But the, the, the Garth Marenghi thing, when I first met him, I said I was fanboyed him straight away because I said to him, I used to watch Garth Marenghi's Dark Place back when it was on, which was, was it late 80s? But it was one of those shows, and again, you know, it you feels watch, older because of the song yeah. of it, obviously. <laughs> and they and they'd made it look eighties, hadn't they? So it was probably yeah, like you say, um, late nineties or whatever. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I just it was one of those shows that was on late again, wasn't it? And I just watch it because it was so weird. It was so existential. It was so it's mm. so reason Mortimer, you know, just brilliant alpha state. Them just do, he said. So I said to him, "Your voice in that show, Matt. Your voice is so." voiceover you know as we all know he's famous for it yeah yeah but he said he said channel four were brilliant because they just left us to it they just said get on and do what you want to do so he said so i would like record one line really close to the mic then i'd record another line like 12 feet from the mic and he said so when you watch it it's really disconcerting to watch because the sound isn't right it's moving about and and I thought, okay, and that so that vo that voiceover that he's got, the voiceover voice. Sometimes they do it really, really up yeah. close to the mic, which in a room you wouldn't that wouldn't be the right sound. But it was to it's to throw you and make you feel uneasy. So so yeah, so that's that's the Matt Berry thing. He's he's America. So unfortunately, you've got to either get on YouTube 
and potentially find it or it might be it might be on my soundcloud again if it isn't i'll put it up there you can all hear matt Barry saying hey and ho <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> i'm glad that's cleared that up he'll be phoning me, he'll be phoning me for fucking royalties no he won't <laughs> Oh, I just wanted to mention cheap, cheap, cheap. One of my, one of my. Oh favorites. my goodness! Oh man, Alex Lowe, Barry from. <clears throat> oh, Alex, is that he's so Edmund's lovely. One? It's the Noel Edmonds show, yeah. That that me, and we and we and we did a sort of Dallas, uh, Dallas theme oh, tune style it. piss take. Yeah, I was a good bit of music that because it was meant. The whole thing was meant to be again was meant to be shunky. It just didn't land, did it? The, the comedy didn't. I don't think really landed. But I mean, as you say, Alex, I love Alex, and Alex. Uh, is a big was a big fan of of our Radio One Breakfast Show and was a huge fan of of um, he did a thing about the Radio One blood on the carpet around that time when the big breakdown of Radio mm. One happened and Bannister came in and we came in and everybody mm. was sacked and now rightly so probably but um, uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> but um, but Alex did a one man show where he did the whole story of that period where Matthew Bannister came to Radio One and he did a one man show and I went. To to it lisa and i went to it and he did this thing it it was brilliant all you know all off the like i say he learned this thing and then at the end of it he then did another short show off the back of that at the same time that night on uh wrestling uk wrestling and all about all about you know big daddy and giant haystacks yeah, yeah. and mm. and again it was like this is my childhood it's so cool yeah. he, I, I, alex is an absolutely he's what a talent what a lovely brilliant brilliant talented guy yeah. he's incredible he's got so many different facets to him you know obviously the Clinton Baptiste thing is kind of yeah, coming, which is brilliant. Which that. is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Was it him or Mark Wooden? I think Mark Wooden also did. Mark Wooden, who did yeah. Cyderdelic, he also did a similar sort of thing where he he did a kind of Ali G type thing where he interviewed actual people who didn't know what this was and mm. said stuff like, you know, I feel your shame and I feel your pain. Yeah, they'd be like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I know you're gay. <laughs> Whatever. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Just please stop the interview. It was that's brilliant. Uh, I don't know if it was Alex. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. Comedy comedy psychics. Yeah, what was, yeah. What, was what was he called? Shir Shirley Shirley something, wasn't it? Yeah. That's right. Shirley Ghostman. Shirley, Shirley Ghostman. Shirley Ghostman. Mm. That that's was right. I think it was Shirley Ghostman and that yeah. did the I feel your pain yeah. and I feel your shame. <laughs> Again, Mark Wooten, bless him. I bumped into him at a party at a very knobby yeah, incredible. Yeah, I bumped into him at a knobby TV party. And I was introduced as the bloke that had written the Strictly Come Dancing theme, which <laughs> happens now and, and has happened for however long it's been very successful. And that he was beside himself singing it to me. Well, people come up to me and they sing it at me straight away in case I've forgotten what, how it goes. And um, he's yes, yeah, sang it to me and it was like uh, beside himself. I can't believe it. You know, he was a massive fan of the fact that I'd done it, which was very lovely because I too was a fan of his. But even when so, you watch, you see Gogglebox on a Friday night, if, if Strictly's on there, Literally everybody, all the different families are singing the theme tune mm -hmm. as they're as they're watching the thing. Well, you know, going back to going back to when I was buying synthesizers and in college at 18 and not going to my lectures because me and John Jakes thought we were going to be famous. You know, I, my, the notion was that we were going to be in a band and we were going to be pop stars. That was that is what you thought. And when you're 18, why not? You know, that's the that, mm -hmm. why not think that I wouldn't discourage anybody thinking that till they're till whenever till they die. But um Oh yeah, so 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 you know that was the notion was that we were going to be in a band and we were going to be famous, and I think what's lovely about the Strictly theme is people will know that people know that music now, and it's my hit. I guess it's that you know mm. I wrote a piece of music, and there was once or Josh and I wrote a piece of music. Sorry, Josh and I co-wrote that piece of music, and I remember when we first it first was 
it gathered traction and that show was doing really well. And we were working on this Vic and Bob stuff and all that kind of thing. We were in a real purple patch, you know. And we went on YouTube and found people in the middle of bumfuck nowhere in America singing that theme tune on their sofa, jumping about, you know. And I just said, how isn't that weird that there's people in parts of this planet we'll never meet who are singing that piece of music that was written yeah. in my shed in, in Surrey, you know, in this in this shed in the garden. And um, that's a really lovely thing to, to think you've done. That, and also, I think what's nice about it is it's a piece of music that makes people feel happy. That's a really nice thing as well. You know, that, that was the brief. And again, I guess going back to what I'm good at or what I hopefully have, have been fairly good at through my career is understanding a, a media brief, understanding a TV or radio or comedy brief and going, this is the end product. This is what it's got to do. Music-wise, what do you think? And, and then, you know, going away and scratching my head with somebody and going, maybe it should do this. And, you know, that's, that's that Strictly theme, I guess, is it, it's got what, what Tony Hatch, the British, you know, one of the, one of the doyens of, of TV themes who wrote Crossroads and Neighbours and all those things. When he was asked about TV themes and any that stood out for him, he said the Strictly theme stands out for me. Uh, he said it's a, just a marvellous piece of music. It does the job. And he said and it has what I would refer to as a fatal opening. It has that bump bump, and everybody hears it. You're in the, you're in the kitchen make you're in the kitchen making whatever. You hear those two notes. And you go, oh shit, it's on. I've got to go and sit down and watch it. That sorry, I digress. But yeah, so so to have written something like that, mm. that you know, that's a hit, and people know it. And I'm, I'm never gonna have a number one. But then who cares? They don't make any sense these days anyway. Oh, no, but it your granny's like singing it. The the little kids are singing it. Yeah. I know, and this is what's so funny about the the Vic and Bob stuff is that it's so it's so out there. You're like <laughs> nobody could. I mean, only us lot who are fans can remember, you know, pork pie whip or whatever it is. You know, <laughs> yeah. So and Jim's forward. tried, you know, <laughs> you know, Jim's tried to have it, but the Mulligan. I'm sure we met, we suggested a Mulligan and O'Hare album. I'm sure we suggested it, but oh, are those man. things that well, they're just a labour of love, aren't they? That's the that's oh, what definitely. they are. They're a labour of love because. You're not doing it to make money. You're doing it to make the fans happy, I guess. And, you know, with all these things, maybe in our dotage, we'll sit down and go, let's put out vinyl. Let's get that together and do a, a mulligan and a hair vinyl. I don't know why they never did, actually. It would make total sense. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so going back to, to Vic and Bob, have they approached you yet to do the theme tune to the glove? <laughs> um, it's not going to let this go. <laughs> I heard you ask Dan about Dan Skinner about it as well. I, I honestly, I don't know anything about what's going on with that. All I know is, I think a script has been written, hasn't it? I think they've written. A There's been script readings, yeah. Yeah, they've There's done been table script readings. readings. I, I have not seen any of that. We, I'm trying to think if I did anything for Catterick. We might have done some bits for Catterick at the time, and I can't remember what the genesis of that would have been. I, I, again, I, we we might have done some stuff for Catterick. If you've never seen Catrick, go and look up the outtakes on YouTube oh. and the sequence, the sequences with Mark, um, Mark Benton, Mark Benton, Mark Benton oh, doing, 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 doing the stuff about the, the wicker shit in the, in the garden <laughs> center. <laughs> and when you watch the outtakes, it's the Lisa came home and she went, you've got to watch this. Cause she had it on, on her laptop, you know, she said, you've got to watch the outtakes from Catrick today. It's brilliant. <laughs> And we watched the Mark Benson thing repeatedly. It was like, that is, Bob had to leave. I think Bob had to get out of the room. Yes. Go outside yeah. the door because it was like. Well, I think Ricky he said Bob was making him laugh. Bob oh, of course. Well, laugh. you know, and wouldn't he, you know. <laughs> but it's the lines as well. The lines are so good. Um, so I think, I think yeah. Catterick, we might have, we might have um, 
we might have contributed. But the thing with those with things like films is if they didn't get us to do it, I'd understand because long form music, you know, when you're writing a score for a movie, it's a different discipline. Not that I wouldn't want the opportunity to to be involved and do it. But writing long form music is a is a slightly different skill. And, you know, Josh and I have, have been asked to do certain things and we've done it. Uh, we've done them. Um, I don't I kind of don't work with Josh so much now them, uh, these days. We got it all got quite disparate after a while. And, um, you know, things change. But if they were to ask us, we, you know, obviously gladly come back together and, and get involved. I honestly don't know. I, I think what's interesting at the moment, I don't want to talk for anybody, but, you know, Bob's fishing all the time. I mean, you know, like I say, you know, they've, you know, they've just shot the next Christmas one. Lisa's just come back. They're already talking about, you know, the, the future. I won't say anything else. But um, so I know the glove is there. If I'm asked to be involved, it would be great. But, you know, and Jim with his art, so he's so embroiled in that, isn't he? I don't know how you make a movie in amongst all that because you've got to take out, what, six months, eight months? I don't know. Be, you know, you've got to take a lot of time out of what you're doing mm. and you've got to wind up that machine again. So I hope so. I obviously, you know, would love to see them do another movie. It would be brilliant um, just as a fan. Yeah, that's why Ted's so tired. All his work, Ted, well, the, the, yeah, the last I, I mean, I'm not sure I should say, but the last I knew we'd bring it around to Ted eventually. Lisa, yeah. I know the real star of the show, as they say. When's he going to talk about Ted? This the real star, it's all very interesting. Lisa, <laughs> when Lisa was away with Lee Mack, she, when they were filming with Lee Mack, people just kept stopping them with Ted and going, He's the real star of the show. So <laughs> Lee Mack just started going, He's the real star of the show. <laughs> um, yeah, they were in about six different hotels in about five days, I think. So poor old Ted. He gets back here and he's absolutely buggered because he's he's eleven years old now. So he's um, yeah. you know he's not yeah. a young man. And we've got this ridiculous puppy, uh, which is a big briard. So she's very big and she beats him up and tries to chew on his <laughs> legs and stuff. So we have to remind her that you know he's he's the talent and that he needs oh, to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know he's he a, he's a, food on the table. He's a, he's a he's a Patterdale mix. <laughs> And um, like I say, we we rescued him. We weren't sure what he was, and he's and when it gets him in his mind to run, he runs. So we have to keep a close eye on him. Because yeah. he, he did he ever get his so, briefcase? I can't answer that question. <laughs> you have to keep watching Gone Fishing. You'll have to get my Christmas wife episode, on. We You'll have to get my Ted wife on to ask about Ted's briefcase. Of course, I can't. I can't. I can't answer those questions. I need to know. No, I, uh, I can't. I can't tell you unless uh, unless I start writing a briefcase tune it, or something. <laughs> it's a matter of time before a novelty single is released. If it was the eighties, I'm sure Schnorbitz must have had a novelty must single. Have, must have done. <laughs> well, hang on. Didn't he sing? Didn't he sing Shaking Stevens a few episodes ago? I'm sure he did. Okay. <laughs> Sure he did. That's, oh, is it too late for the Christmas number one? Oh, man? I love yeah, Paul yeah, and Bob's yeah. impression of him with the little, te- the little teeth. <laughs> <laughs> when that start that started, um, uh, Lisa said to Bob, "Shall I bring a dog to the sh- to the show? You know, to to go on fishing because we had an old English called Dolly, who's now deceased, uh, and Ted at the time." And Lisa said, "I'll bring a dog along." And and Lisa said, "Which one shall I bring?" And Bob said, "Bring the funny one." <laughs> <laughs> It's just quite gradual. Because the first series, I don't think he's on. It was, I was watching some on, on um, Dave or something the other day. And suddenly it's, it's noticeable there's no Ted in these episodes. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of makes more and more appearances until that's all anyone wants to see, really. <laughs> <laughs> Ted's birthday. <laughs> yeah. 
we are truly we are truly a nation of dog lovers we really yeah. are i was in i was in my local pub and on the wall there was a little um thing they put up and it said we've raised 1500 quid for for marie curie cancer care next to it there was a thing saying we've raised six grand for the local dogs home and my mate said to me we'd have a cure for cancer if we had no dogs in this country surely priorities, it's like, priorities. we just love <laughs> we love dogs i'm sorry <laughs> oh. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dan. It's been my, quite a boast. Cheers, my Dan. pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you all for listening to this edition of Quite a Boast. Special thanks to Matt Lucas for permission to use the Peanuts music as our theme tune. And thanks to Ed Lewis for this edit. Thank you to Jake Chesson for permission to use the photo from his 1995 shoot of Jim and Bob in our various online locations for the podcast. And of course, thank you very much to Jim Moyer and Bob Mortimer, without whom this podcast, well, it just wouldn't exist, would it? Remember to check out Paula's Divine Comedians podcast as well, and to join the Reza Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I think you'll agree that really was a lot of fun. Goodbye.